Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to Kelly Dry and Warren's latest podcast, Full Spectrum. I'm Steve Augustino from the Communications Practice Group, and with me is Brad Carrier from the Communications Practice Group. And uh, Brad and I are here today to talk to, to you about um, FCC enforcement. It's one of our common topics, and we wanted to go through a recent um, activity within the communications bar involving enforcement and talk a little bit about that and and run through it. So our topic today is going to be a meeting with the FCC Enforcement Bureau Chief and uh, her deputies. I'm going to let this get started with with Brad Courier. Brad is a co-chair of the Federal Communications Bar Association's Enforcement Practice um, Committee and He's going to talk about the brown bag that was held on July 29th, and then after he sets that up, then we're going to run through some of the things that happened and some of our impressions on it. So, Brad, why don't you go ahead and get started? Sure. So the brown bag that we're going to talk about today is actually mostly an annual event that's held by the Enforcement Committee of the Federal Communications Bar Association. Uh, Generally speaking, the bureau chief will bring her highest deputies as well as the division heads to come and talk about some key topics as well as the focus areas that the bureau is going to be working on either currently or in the future. So that that took care of most of our conversation back on July 29th, and we covered a number of issues, including some hot topic areas that we've talked about previously on podcasts. So we'll actually start off with a division that isn't quite a division yet, and that relates to the fraud division. Yeah, absolutely. So, so why don't we why don't we get started on? It? I mean, it was first of all. Let me let me add to that. You know, the the FCBA event was very well attended. It was packed in there. Um, I think that's in part a desire for people to see and understand um, what the bureau is thinking and what the ideas are. Um, I've found Rosemary Harold, the bureau chief, to be very open with this and very much willing to engage the bar and and the bar association on these kinds of topics. Yeah, that's right. And also, when you're able to ask these questions directly to the decision makers at the agency, it helps you give some insights that you might not otherwise get from the publicly available releases. Right, right. Okay, so now as you as you had started there, let's talk about the the fraud division. This was this was a topic of our one of our uh, podcasts about uh, a year or so ago, they were creating a fraud division. Won't you, what, what was up with that? Yeah, that's right. So back in February of 2019, the FCC issued an announcement that they were going to create a fraud division to prosecute fraud in the Universal Service Fund and the compliance issues that relate to that. Um, but the entirety of the announcement was about a two-page order, and it left a lot of questions unanswered, uh, in particular about the status of the current Universal Service Fund strike force, which in many cases is actually dedicated to prosecuting fraud in the Universal Service Fund. Uh, There was also some questions about the time frame and when the fraud division would actually be implemented and what actually would fall in its ambit at the end of the day. Yeah, and and listeners to this podcast will remember us talking about the fraud division and what was going to happen with the USF strike force. I I think the the big news that Rosemary announced on this is that the fraud division is... um, 
very, very close to becoming official. I think she said we should be watching the Federal Register uh, for for something on this, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the fraud division uh, needed to get Federal Register publication of the announcement of the Office of Management and Budget approval, and that's expected soon, uh, at least from our conversation that we had with the Bureau Chief. Right, right, okay. And then um, did we learn a lot more, and we learned much more, really, about the scope of it? I know her, her future division chief was there as mm-hmm. well. That's right. We did get confirmation that the division, the fraud divisions, are going to act as a full replacement for the Universal Service Fund strike force. And at least initially, it would be made up of the same personnel. We also got details that the fraud division's scope will be limited to universal service fraud for now, with potentially other FCC-supported programs like TRS potentially included later on. Yeah. Yeah, I asked, I asked that question afterwards, sort of like, okay, well, what about other types of fraud, other things outside of universal service? And, uh, you know, the answer we got at the moment was, mm, not right now. Yeah, that's right. And there's also still some ambiguity about how the division is going to work with and overlap with, potentially, the work that's done by the Office of the Inspector General. Now, the Office of the Inspector General... Um, generally speaking, (laughs) is focused on recoupment of improperly claimed funds and also works directly with the Department of Justice and collaborate for prosecutions under what's known as the False Claims Act. Now, it's still not clear where the distinction lies here between the OIG and the Fraud Division and the DOJ, and we expect a fair amount of continued overlap, at least in the near term. Right. I mean, that's always been a concern of ours. You and I have had this kind of discussion before. It's sort of why... Uh, you know, why have these multiple investigations? Uh, and often, you know, we're seeing that. We see some overlap in that. Now, um, you know, it doesn't appear that there's a lot of communication going on between the Enforcement Bureau and the Office of Inspector General as to who they're investigating or what they're doing on those. Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, the fraud division would be focused just on the rule violations and the associated fines for those rule violations. Meanwhile, OIG would be focused solely on recoupment and, as we described, this collaboration that's done with the Department of Justice. But even in just saying that, you can see where the interrelatedness applies. If you're having the, the, the funds don't need to be recouped unless they were actually dispersed unlawfully. So all of these things interrelate with each other, and it still remains unclear about how well these different parties are going to work together and really whether these parties should be working together at all aspects of the investigations or if they should take turns, basically, depending on what stage you're in. So is this going to be like the Who song, right? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss? No, in this case, yes. I mean, they've confirmed that this is at least is a full replacement for the USF Strike Force, so we shouldn't expect anything in the near term different, at least as far as their standard operating procedures. Okay. So so let's shift then to the, the next topic, the other thing. It seems... These days at the FCC, you can't have a meeting without them talking about robocalls and the problem of illegal robocalls and what the commission is doing to solve it. Now, uh, Rosemary talked about this as well. This is There's a good chunk of this that is the Enforcement Bureau, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a policymaking component of that, and that's something that uh, can be seen on uh, Steve's other podcasts related to TCPA issues. Um, but here, you know, robocalling has, has been and continues to be one of the main focus areas of the FCC's Enforcement Bureau. 
And I think the bureau chief left no doubt that we should expect more big ticket enforcement actions against robocallers in the remainder of 2019 and into 2020 and for the foreseeable future. Right. And we've seen a couple of those, right? Um, $200 million in fines on I mean, this. The largest uh, imposed forfeiture in the FCC's history. Right, right. But there was a question about uh, the collection of those forfeitures, correct? Sure. And part of the issue with that is, is that the collection of enforcement fines is not actually within the authority of the FCC. They need to work with their Department of Justice partners, and it's actually the DOJ that would take the party to court in a collection action to try to collect on a fine. And so while the FCC you know, continues to see news stories and other media where there's criticism about the collection of these fines, you know, in reality, it's not actually up to them. Right, right. There was, a, there was a trade press reporter who asked a question or two about this. I think that's really where this came from. And um, what I remember Rosemary saying was that DOJ in this instance is fully on board and is attempting to collect these. I think, thought she was pretty emphatic on that point. No, I think that's true. And, you know, the amount of fines that we're talking about, it is easy then to garner interest from DOJ partners when you're dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars in potential fines. Right, right. But so, it's against people that probably don't actually have the hundreds of millions of dollars to pay it. I think there's people that we know do not have that kind of money to pay those types of fines. But, you know, part of issuing a fine that large is a deterrent element to it. And I think you know, the bureau chief and, uh, you know, the meeting in general, all the leaders there, were pretty clear about that, that they're not just uh, necessarily thinking about the case in front of them, but also the next case when they're setting some of those fines. Right, right. And I think there was a comment, they were they were proud that these two individuals had also been shut down entirely yeah, from it. Right. So there is, there's not only the deterrent, but there is sort of stopping the active harm from at least the individuals that they can, um, can stop. Um, I think we should pivot a little bit because there was some discussion about things that were happening in the future on this, a little bit of discussion about pending legislation and how that might impact the enforcement process. Sure. So one of the main limitations on robocalling enforcement is actually the TCPA itself and actually the structure of the Communications Act. And so the limitations of the TCPA, we usually have a one-year statute of limitations for prosecuting the violations or proposing a fine. There's usually a need actually to issue a citation before you even get to the proposing of a fine stage. So with that in mind, the FCC has, and at least from our discussion, it seems like it's going to continue, that the forfeiture focus is likely to stay on spoofing violations with TCPA violations, which are the robocalling violations, being covered by citations. But to your point, Steve, there was a lot of discussion about pending bills in Congress that would do a number of different things, uh, including increasing the thresholds of potential fines, increasing the, 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 the statute of limitations period, which I think is going to actually be probably the most impactful uh, change, uh, which will allow them to bring larger, more complex cases over a longer period of time, um, and yeah. also eliminating the citation requirement. Right. Both of those would help. Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't much discussion at this in brown bag on it um, about just the amount of work that goes into tracking down the individuals that are originating the illegal calls, proving that there are illegal calls, collecting the information from the complaints and sort of putting together the full case. But all of that is necessary and it does take time. Oh, it absolutely does, especially when you're potentially dealing with violators who may be adept 
at hiding some aspects of their corporate structure, where they're located, where the operations are, and, and how to prosecute these types of cases. Right. Yeah. That, that brings up the other thing that they mentioned on this that I, I thought was interesting was, um, you know, this brown bag occurred a couple of days before the FCC's August open meeting. And one of the things there were changes from a recently passed piece of legislation in Congress that expanded the Truth in Caller ID Act to cover calls which originate outside the United States. And the Enforcement Bureau folks that were there at the Brown Bag seemed to be very um, supportive of that and seemed to expect that that was going to increase their ability to get at some of these illegal calls. Yeah, and that, that's consistent with what we've heard in other enforcement actions and other speeches and statements made around these policymaking moves as well, that they really can only do so much under the current law, and there is a not insignificant amount of this traffic that's actually coming from international points. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let, let's talk then about, there, there was one thing I, I do want to talk about um, that occurred really not in the brown bag, but was is related to this, sort of um, some discussions or suggestions about new tools, or ways to address these illegal robocalls. You want to cover that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So at this, you know, August meeting, uh, you know, as part of this adoption of the rules, dealing again with international um, robocalls, as well as uh, applying the robocalling rules to some of the most popular forms of text messages. That, that's also important to get across. But as part of that, Commissioner Rosenworcel actually uh, issued a statement, you know, again, you know, supporting the moves that have been made so far, but saying that they could be doing more. And when they said could be doing more, uh, what seems to be the change is who some of these actions would be directed at. And what it seems to be is increasing the heat and the focus on carriers, um, potentially naming and shaming, as she described it, um, carriers that are carrying this robocalling traffic, and potentially going as so far as teeing up ideas of some sort of aiding and abetting um, you know, violation for a carrier that knowingly carries this type of unlawful traffic and finding that that sort of aiding and abetting is an unjust and unreasonable practice under Section 201. Yeah, yeah. Those are, I mean, those are significant changes if they were to happen. I mean, it would just, be a complete change in the focus, um, not just in what they're looking for, but also who they would be looking at in robocalling investigations. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and I, honestly, I question whether or not that would have a significant impact I, you know I think the um, in stopping these types of calls I mean it would make carriers a lot more cautious I would suspect about who they're going to serve but I'm not sure that's a good thing overall well and there also seems there also are these parallel efforts which the carriers appear to be taking very seriously participation in the traceback group the implement, implementation of shaken and stir that are already these voluntary measures that are being put in by the industry that shows that kind of commitment. And so this aiding and abetting issue, um, if it exists, um, isn't necessarily what the carriers that are working with the FCC now. Right, right, yeah, okay. All right, so um, so that's fraud, and that's robocalling. Um, I guess we can't, we can't talk about enforcement these days without going back to some of the bread and butter issues that the Enforcement Bureau um, covers. And as set up to this, I'll just remind our, our listeners, one of the things that uh, Rosemary Harold as the Bureau Chief has made clear was that her desire to return the Bureau to a 
uh, rules-based kind of enforcement, very much focused on the specifics are what in the rules, less so than, particularly than her predecessor, on broad principles and things like that. And that brings us to um, a very much bread and butter than kind of thing about um, unauthorized operations, right? Sure, so I mean, unauthorized operations can cover a great many things, but really two of the things that are focused on as part of the brown bag. First was the LED sign initiative, and this was actually a topic of one of Stephen, one of our prior podcasts, as well as some of our blog posts. Um, but basically was a almost year-long initiative going after manufacturers and retailers of LED signs that had failed to go through the equipment authorization process and also violations associated with the disclosures that are made to consumers that actually naturally flow out of that authorization process. So we got confirmation that the LED sign initiative was a major focus area for the Bureau in 2019 and also a little indication that there may be more to come, that it's not actually done yet. Um, now, they did discuss the importance of pre-enforcement outreach for entities that may not know that they fall under the FCC's rules. And again, if you listen to our prior podcast on it, that's one of the issues that came up is whether or not these entities even knew that they were subject to FCC rules, let alone this often complex equipment authorization process. All right. Yeah, it seems like they, they didn't, and it's amazing to me that there um, potentially are more actions out there in this area. But um, the other thing in unlicensed operations or unauthorized operations um, is pirate radio. And I sometimes feel like when we talk about enforcement, we're actually required to say the words pirate and radio together because this is such <laughs> a popular topic with them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's the gold standard of unauthorized operations. You don't get much more unauthorized operations than pirate radio. So. This actually was kind of a surprise to me, at least during the brown bag, because during the discussion on authorized operations, mostly in the equipment marketing context, you know, actually Rosemary stated that one of the things that she was particularly proud of was um, some work involving a case that we've talked about before on the podcast, this uh, enforcement action, the Polynese case. And that was actually the FCC's first ever fine against a landlord for supporting pirate radio operations. And I think at this point, you know, seeing the actions and then hearing her as well as the head of the Spectrum Enforcement Division, you know, really talk about being for, focused on this, um, you know, as a major um, enforcement area shows that landlords are going to be targeted in future investigations as gatekeepers to pirate radio operators. And this has been a major point for Commissioner O'Reilly uh, since he arrived at the FCC. Yeah, he's making progress, it seems. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. This is sort of an aiding and abetting kind of concept as well here. It absolutely is. I would caution that the Polynese case dealt with landlords who not only knew about the pirate radio operations, but also actively participated in it. Right, right. So that's the easiest part. All right. Um, I think we have time for, the, for just two other smaller um, takebacks uh, on this or takeaways on this rather. But um, um, first of all, it, the concept of self-disclosures did come up. Um, and the process for that. And uh, so they had some recommendations for us and for practitioners overall on this, right? Yeah, I mean, in response to a direct question of whether the Bureau values self-disclosures of violations, either in its consideration of fines or in whether or not it will pursue settlement discussions and consent decrees, uh, we got an affirmative yes. They do still value self-disclosure violations and actually indicated that they may be willing to apply higher forfeiture discounts, and that was pre applied in previous administrations, 
for so, such disclosures. Um, but that immediately came with a caveat. And that caveat was that if you're going to come to the FCC with a self-disclosure of a violation, that disclosure needs to be accurate and comprehensive. Otherwise, you risk significant blowback. You may actually end up worse than if you had them come to you. Right, yeah, yeah. It's a, the, I think the point was it sounds like you're, um, you were hiding something if you weren't complete with this, whether right. that was intentional or not. Um, so it can, it can turn on you. It just, it does show that if you're gonna come forward, if you discover something, you have to faithfully and fully investigate it. Um, and there is value in coming to the Bureau before they know about it to explain it to them. Um, they didn't discuss this, but sometimes what I've seen is there's always this tension as to when to come. Do you come when you first discover it, or do you come when you've had a chance to fully investigate it? And those can be sometimes many weeks apart, if not many months apart mm -hmm. on that. So that last caution really kind of gave me a little bit of pause there. It's sort of like, well, now you made the question about when to come even harder um, to decide. Right. Well, at, at a minimum, it makes clear that if there are qualifiers, if there are caveats to disclosure, those absolutely need to be uh, up front and center from the beginning. Right. Right. Okay. And then the last thing I saw was there was there was discussion when we were talking about the statute of limitations. Um, I think it was Rosemary who who raised it, but I don't remember exactly. Talked about tolling agreements and the use of tolling agreements um, for complex investigations in order to ensure the commission has time to do a complete um, investigation and create a complete record on this. Um, and you know, I I thought that that was. Interesting, what struck me about it was that it seems like we're coming back to a point where tolling agreements are almost routine in investigations. Like they're, they're gonna be much more common than they had been in the past. Yeah, and even if they don't come to the level of routine or expected, they should at least be a part of any sort of initial discussion that a party has with the Enforcement Bureau in response to an investigation because at least the discussion about it appears to be there. Right. Right. Yeah. It Always seems like, available. yeah, it seems like they want to do this. And, and hopefully, I mean, we're not in a position where it's going to be, you know, endless tolling agreements and sort of never ending um, investigations. But, um, you know, one year comes about very, very quickly. And uh, you don't oftentimes as a practitioner helping to defend in those situations, you don't want the commission to rush through this. You want them to have time to understand what you've been saying, to double check what you've been saying, and to see everything out there. And so often it is in the client's interest to um, agree to that tolling agreement. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Okay, all right, anything else? Well, I mean, really just to summarize, I mean, we're fully in the dog days of summer here in, in DC, and usually that signals a slow period for enforcement, and actually the FCC as a whole. I mean, they, they just had their August meeting. They won't have a meeting until fairly late in September. So, But with all that in mind, the investigations started by the Enforcement Bureau, those are still ongoing. There will be more investigations ramped up during that period. And what we'll see is probably more actions in the fall. That's what we usually see in pa if the past is prologue. So, you know, keep an eye out for it, but understand that at least from this uh, brown bag, what we basically got was confirmation on some of the points that we already thought were the case, as well as a couple of things that maybe we didn't necessarily expect. 
And that's sort of the value of being able to talk to these decision makers in these types of events. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I thought it was a good event. I thought it was helpful. Um, we, uh, we hope that you guys learned a few things from our discussion, our impressions of this. We will continue, as you know, to monitor enforcement and we will do additional podcasts as we have major actions and major things to discuss. And um, we hope that you'll continue to keep listening to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.